So we did the historical research. <clears throat> All right, next thing I'm gonna talk about is not in your notes. So grab a blank sheet of paper and be prepared to start writing. <clears throat> I had a number of text messages come in as uh, Chris was going through talking about the historical research and that's saying, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Thanks for doing that, you know, that kind of stuff. And <clears throat> what, tell, what that tells me is there's probably a little bit of greed running through the air as he was going through that. So let's talk about greed for a little bit. Um, and you're gonna want a few sheets of paper on this one because I'm gonna ramble for a while to help you on stuff. <clears throat> um, Where the idea came from putting this into fast track is when I was writing the newsletter or writing the newsletter a few years ago, I did, I wrote a section in there about fear and had a lot of good feedback on it. And somebody said, Hey, why don't you do the same thing, but talk about greed. So I thought I would just roll it into fast track. Um, <clears throat> and people have asked many, many times over the years, how do you deal with the, I guess the best word is the ease of making money doing this, but you're observing people who are close to them who are struggling. So as you, and when, you, when you're starting out, the ease of making money at this is not apparent to you. You can see the moves and say, wow, that'd be great once I can see them. As you gain experience at this and develop the patient, or first the eye and then the patience to wait for your setup and don't screw around with the artistic stuff and just do the foundational trades, you'll see that it actually is not difficult to make money trading. And at some point it, it hits many people that they feel a combo of, I don't know if it's guilt, a little bit of guilt, it's a little bit of annoyance at those that are struggling <clears throat> elsewhere in life because you've told them about the opportunity to, make to be able to make money in the market, but they don't, um, they don't jump on the opportunity. And so what ends up happening is you feel a little bit guilty that you're blessed with so much opportunity and you're annoyed at friends that you've presented with the same opportunity, but they're unwilling to take action to change their situation. So may cover that one in a little bit later class, but let me start primarily with greed. And so what is greed? Easy definition is that it is an inordinate wanting. It's a longing that's out of control. And so if it's a longing that's out of control, then by definition, greed can never be satisfied because it's out of control. <clears throat> you get what you wanted and now you want more. And so there's never enough. And that is not a situation that you want to be in because then you're dissatisfied no matter what happens. You know, it's one thing to recognize a good trade setup. It's a totally different thing to be greedy. <clears throat> Here's a few scenarios that I want you to think about. And I'm sure you've, many of you have run into all, if not most of these. And so the first one is, let's say you've been working, you're, you're in your trading account, you're still at $1,000 trade size, 
<clears throat> pardon me, your brick rate is high. The winds are piling up, which should not be a surprise if your brick rate is high. Your losses are small, which again, should not be a surprise if your brick rate is high. You're confident, you're consistent. And so you bump your trade size. And then you hit a choppy period in the market and your batting average quickly drops. That's one scenario. <clears throat> Second scenario is you intelligently, intelligently close a trade at a nice profit amount and the trade keeps on going without you. Now, every time you go back and look at it, you watch it continue to run in your direction and you get this sick feeling in your stomach because now you're watching the, the option premium that you sold that it keeps going up and up and up and up and it's going without you. And you get so caught up in watching it that you actually miss other setups. Third scenario, <clears throat> every time that you miss a trade for whatever the reason, you feel this anxiety, it's a nervous feeling. You find that you focus on the ones that you missed rather than remembering the ones that you did. You keep thinking of the ones that got away. Then you have a loss and you wanna make it back right now. And so you seek immediate revenge on the stock or on the market. And the fourth scenario is you overhear your coworker mention a stock on some conference call, a Zoom call while you're at work in the office, but you don't have access to Q charts, nor think or swim, so you can't check the charts. Now, during that conference call, during that Zoom call, you happen to read Kramer's article on, on CNBC and he's touting the stock. So what do you do? <clears throat> you go open your broker's page and you buy some shares and you do it without checking the charts. Then when you get home that night, you go look at Q charts and you discover that that stock is at the top Bollinger Band and starting to roll over. Now you may not have done all of those yet, but I suspect that every one of us has done at least one. And there have been many of us that done all of them, probably more than once. When you did those, you were under the power, under the spell of greed. It was inordinate wanting. You had these dreams of glory, probably unrealistic, but they were still dreams of glory. If you've never done any of those four scenarios I ran through, congratulations. However, that doesn't mean that you are greed-free. It probably means that you're not trading because everybody runs into that situation at some point. But if you think about it, it takes some greed to want to trade in the first place. Because otherwise, why would you take on the risk of losing money if you don't have the desire for more? Without desire, there's no motivation to take action. And without desire, there's no reason to risk any dollars. 
So if you think back to Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street, he was correct when he said greed is good. And realistically, greed actually is a good thing because it makes you take action. The opposite of greed is being content. If you're content and happy with what you've got, why take the risk for more? But remember, what we're doing is we're looking for opportunity. And we're looking at opportunity that shows up as patterns on a stock chart. And you have to be alert to see the opportunity and you have to be willing to take action. However, that action comes with the risk. And the risk is that you may lose what you already have. And therein lies the dilemma. To grab an opportunity, the trader has to risk something that they already have. The trader sees, you know, basically two birds in the bush and they already have one bird in their hand. Now the question becomes, do they set down the one bird hoping it won't fly away while they go for the two in the bush? Because he's going to feel like a fool if he doesn't get the two in the bush and loses the one that he already had in his hand. There's going to be other times where he won't be satisfied with the one that he kept in his hand after he sees his fellow trader get those two in the bush also for a new total of three birds in hand. And there's the dilemma. You'll be in a trade convinced it's going to go higher. And it's either going to add more profit to an already profitable trade or it's rising to recapture some of the loss of a trade that probably should have already been exited. Hope combi combines with greed to keep you in a trade even when you know you should get out. Greed also shows up as someone's unwillingness to accept and take a loss. And it shows up in someone's unwillingness to be satisfied with a profit. Most greed comes from a sense of scarcity. You know, it's a belief, a concern, a fear that there may not be enough. Yet on the other hand, someone who has a sense of abundance, they don't feel the urge to overtrade nor do they feel that they need to stay in a trade that's flashing multiple reasons to exit, all in the hope of getting more profit. When you have a sense of abundance, you understand that there's no reason to hold on to a loser because there's a sense of future potential opportunity. Say it differently, they realize this is not the last trade they'll ever see in their lifetime. There's another bus coming. And there's no need to wring your hands over the money you left on the table because you're going to be back at the table with the next, within the next few days. <clears throat> Traders who see abundance do not experience greed, 
nor do they have this wanting to the point of it being frenzied. If you see the world and the markets as abundant with opportunities, then you're not going to feel the need to hang on in your trades because you realize that another opportunity, whether it's large or small, it's just around the corner. There's also another kind of greed that's sourced from a different place than scarcity. And the other kind of greed comes from a sense of, um, I, I can't come up with the right word for it, but it's like an attitude of easy come, easy go. It's almost like it's a ridiculous arrogance. They've seen others do it, or they've done it elsewhere in a different arena, so they believe they can do it in this arena in no time at all. And it's either overconfidence and or a sense of, I deserve it. And that attitude puts them out of touch with the realities of the stock market. Greed does a great job of distorting perceptions. We don't see things as they are, rather we see them as we are. A greedy person sees the market through greedy eyes. You've heard me say before, if you ever find yourself using a calculator while you're in a trade, then you're in trouble. By the same token, when you find that you're telling yourself a story about a trade, be very careful. <clears throat> is that story based on facts or is it based on hope and imagining? Stories are powerful and they're compelling. <clears throat> Pardon me, and when trading, you've got to stick with the known facts. You stick with what you see on a chart and what you know is going on outside of the chart. Greed can cause you to act quickly, and you may have a fear of missing out, so you enter incorrectly. And once in a trade, you have FOMO again, a fear of missing out, so you stay in too long, even though the chart is telling you otherwise. <clears throat> so the question becomes, how do you overcome greed? First, you have to have a mindset of abundance. It's not the last trade you'll ever do. And you have to learn to appreciate what you have while knowing and accepting there's even more to come. There's so many trading opportunities, you cannot possibly get to all of them. Your job is to select some of the good ones. And this trade is just one of hundreds and hundreds that you'll do over your lifetime. So it doesn't matter. So in order to fix the greed, you first have to become aware. What I would say is try this. Imagine an emotional trading spectrum. You know, it's a spectrum of trading emotions. You can look at the emotions that I give out to you in class one, about the range of trading emotions in POWs. And at one end, at one end of this, at one end of the spectrum, your mood changes based on whether you're winning or losing in the trade. In other words, your mood is based on your profit and loss. And if you're at the extreme edge of this, give yourself a one. So if you find that you're moody based on 
your profit and loss, give yourself a one. At the other end of the spectrum, you find you're focused on properly executing against your trade plan. Proper entry, intelligent exit done according to plan. If you're at the extreme edge of this, give yourself a 10. <clears throat> and if you're not at a 10, nor a one, what number in between those would you rate yourself at that moment? Next time you're in a trade, check in with yourself a few times during the trade or during the, during the trade and make note of where you are on that spectrum. Don't try and change your focus. Just simply make note of where it is because the first step is awareness. And I suggest you do this exercise over the course of at least a few dozen trades. It's a very, very simple addition <clears throat> to what's provided in POWs about how to document a trade over the lifetime of the trade. And once you've recorded and identified how you're acting during a series of a few dozen trades, now you can look to, to, now you can look to correct the issue if it even exists. This is where it'd be incredibly helpful to be in a live room because what I would tell you to do is turn to your neighbor for about three minutes and review what you just heard. Since you don't have that capability, what I want you to do, I've got 642. I'm going to give you four minutes to reread what you wrote, fill in the blanks, and then I'll start going from there. I'm not going to walk away. I'm going to sit here for four minutes and wait. So reread your notes, fill in the blanks, and we'll go from there. By the way, this is an example of what's going to be in the trading psychology class. Things like this to get you to recognize where your flaws or shortcomings are and exercises to help you become aware of that. Four minutes, go. I write, cool, glad you're enjoying getting value. And I responded back and he said, beyond value, it's the perspective. Um, the rules help me protect myself from my emotions and the actions I take when I'm unaware of them. I've started to see risk as a positive, if that makes sense. The notes just pushed me through a barrier, which was the calculator. Someone else just wrote, love the tie-in with abundance mentality. Never thought of it that way. And it's great. <clears throat> Hey, Chris. Sir. Yeah, I have a comment that I was thinking of just now. Mm -hmm. So um, I forget where I read this, but it was in psychological research. Um, it had to do with what are people most afraid of? And um, as we all probably have heard at some point, that's uh, one of them is uh, public speaking. That's public a, speaking a, is number one and dying is two. <laughs> dying is two. But I thought, well, something that was very interesting on there was being wrong. It was up there near the top. And um, I remember this phrase uh, I heard somebody say once. It was, I would rather die than be wrong. And um, it, I think, kind of just speaks to something in, in a lot of us. It's just, it's why we can't handle uh, hypocrisy, things like that. Yes. Um, we'd rather see our enemy fail and maybe even go down in flames with them than then admit that maybe I didn't, um, I didn't have it all figured out. Correct. You know, 
that whole thing. So I wonder if this is kind of also at play with the greed, the fear, the FOMO, you know, if I'm wrong on this trade or if I'm wrong on whatever it is I'm doing here, it's just, it's too much to bear, you know, and we'd rather not have to face the, the gut-wrenching reality of that sometimes. So some of that will show up with your personal journaling as you're writing down what's going on either, you know, in your head, in your life and or during a trade. And you'll start to see those patterns, if you will, show up. You may not see it on one or two trades, but if you, if you document, you know, 20, 30 trades, a string, and then go back and look for patterns, you'll start to see that. And as you start to recognize those, now you think, okay, that needs to be addressed. But that shows up in the documenting, in the journaling, the personal journaling. Yeah, I think that's great, especially to journal when you um, are in a, a, tra a trade that didn't go how you expected it to, perhaps, or how you pl uh, planned it out. Well, even you want to do the same thing, even when it goes the way you expected it to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? It's both. Yeah. It's not. It's not just selective journaling. Right. Cool. Yeah. And just so people know, what do you do for a living? I'm a counselor, mental health. <laughs> yep. So you're you're dealing with this kind of stuff all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. Ninety percent, ninety-five percent of the work I do is uh, my mindset, talking about perception and taking different perspectives on life. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Uh, somebody wrote in and said, "Can I repeat the emotional trading spectrum?" Yeah. Let me go through that again. Um, where did I put it here? So at one end of the spectrum, your mood changes based on whether you're winning or losing in the trade. In other words, your mood is based on your profit and loss on that trade. And if you find that you're at the extreme edge of this, give yourself a one. At the other end of the spectrum, you're focused on properly executing against your trading plan. It's all about making a brick, proper entry, intelligent exit done according to plan. And if you're at the extreme edge of this, give yourself a 10. And if you're not at a 10 nor at a one, then you have to make a judgment. What number in between would you rate yourself at that particular moment? And then next time you're in a trade, check in with yourself a few times during the duration of the trade and just make note of where you are on the spectrum. Again, not trying to change it, just make note of where it is and then do that over the course of a few dozen trades so that now you become aware. <clears throat> Other questions? Cool. All right, next thing to talk about is the weather. There are specific, I guess, horrific events that show up that you'll likely be able to profit on, if not this year, but at least in years going forward. Hurricanes and earthquakes are two examples. <clears throat> First one to talk about is a hurricane trade. So when you hear that there's a hurricane spinning in the ocean, it becomes a potential trade when it is forecast to make land. 
and it becomes a hurricane trade the instant it's announced that it's going to strike the U.S. mainland. <clears throat> With that, you got upside trades. Could be uh, Home Depot, Lowe's. Uh, Briggs and Stratton, right? They make generators, Clorox with bleach, maybe a, a lumber producer, timber producer, because you're going to need plywood and it's scarce. And any other companies that participate in the recovery after the hurricane leaves that area. These stocks typically don't move well. We're just simply looking to make a brick. And the trade is over once the hurricane hits land. <clears throat> you might have i don't know maybe 24 hours once it hits land because then communication and info will be known about the extent of damage and if you think back what i'm talking about think of the one that hit naples and fort myers um, about a year ago <clears throat> they knew it was bad they didn't know how bad it was until it had cleared unless you live there but communications were down if you see, if you're aware of a hurricane that's spinning out in the Gulf of Mexico and expected to hit the eastern Texas, western Louisiana coast, go do some research to see which oil firms will be affected. Because if the hurricane is going to hit the mainland, oil can move to the upside. <clears throat> so, as an example of that, Valero was not affected. But it went screaming through the roof, movement-wise, when Katrina hit back, whatever that was, 10, 15 years ago. There's about eight refineries that are located and isolated around New Orleans and the Texas coast. You want to find out which company has refineries there and where they are specifically located. So those are the potential upside trades. Now, what are the downside trades? Well, you got insurance companies. <clears throat> and it's nice to know in advance where their coastal coverage is clustered, if you can find that out. So, and if you don't find it, you know, say there's a hurricane that's going to hit tomorrow, you won't be able to find out between now and tomorrow. But if you're paying attention, wherever that hurricane happens to be, they'll talk about it on CNBC at some point. And they'll say that, oh, uh, I don't know, Chubb was a large insurer in that region. And you'll see that as a result, you'll see an impact to the stock price of that particular insurer. That doesn't help you for that particular one. But keep that in mind, because if another one comes through there, there's a chance that they are the predominant insurer there. But over time, you'll start to, it, the universe does a wonderful thing. It, it drops little hints for you if you know when to listen. <clears throat> and by you putting it out there in your mind, like, hey, I need to find the answer to this question, you almost don't need to Google it. It'll show up in some point on a discussion. You'll just overhear it if you're listening. What you can do if you're unsure, you can call investor relations at that insurance firm and see if you can find out if the company and what percentage is on the Atlantic and or Gulf Coast. You know, way back when, Chubb covered like 90% of Hilton Head, South Carolina. I don't know if that's still true today. But now once you know which companies are insuring which parts of the country or have a heavy prominence or preponderance in a certain area, then when it's announced that a hurricane's gonna hit that area, that stock is likely to decline for a day or two after it hits land. 
And you can go back and research past hurricanes to see this in action. <clears throat> then you've got another ability there or another opportunity there with earthquakes. Something like 80% of the production from the Pacific Rim, so India, Vietnam, China, et cetera, comes through the port of Long Beach, basically in the, the southern, not even the southern part, but southern part of LA County. Um, if an earthquake hits this area in Southern California, listen for damage to the port and or its infrastructure. <clears throat> if you live here, it's very easy to drive by and see. If you don't live here, you can do a Google, a Google map search, you can see. But if you go to the Long Beach port and or the LA port, and it basically runs between the eastern edge of Palos Verdes from San Pedro down to almost Seal Beach or the, west, the western edge of Long Beach. And you've got the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of LA, or sorry, Port of LA and the Port of Long Beach right there. If you look at a map, you'll see the 710 freeway runs north from there and heads towards LA. And if you look at a map, you'll see rail that is hugging that as well. And so what happened is product comes off the ship, um, assuming the, um, the dock workers are not moving slowly. It gets loaded on trucks. If you've driven the 710, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're, they're heavy heading north. And you'll also see rail going through there and from there. And then it heads out to distribution centers out in the Inland Empire, Riverside area and from there out to the rest of the country. If we have a bad earthquake and there's damage on either the 710 and or the rail lines there, that's gonna have an impact across the rest of the country. Now, living here, I hope that doesn't happen, but living here, you know, that stuff, it shakes every now and then. We haven't had a good one in a while, not saying that we will, but you just gotta be aware of that. And that says then again, if the highways are down or the rails are impacted, that could have a huge impact on food and other products as it ships around the rest of the country. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean when we get an earthquake in Southern California, you go jump. Decade and a half ago, there was a major earthquake out in El Centro. If you don't know where El Centro is, um, find San Diego on a map go about 100, 150 miles inland, right on the Mexican border, maybe halfway to Arizona, um, huge produce growing region. There is little infrastructure there. While it's a big source of food and produce, there's not much infrastructure there. And there was major damage there, but that it's, it's basically dirt. It doesn't hurt anything. They're still able to, it's very easy to do a bypass for a road to get around it. So while the, while the size of the earthquake was large, the extent of damage was very small. So just, just because you hear earthquakes in California doesn't mean you jump. You gotta be aware. <clears throat> but back to there being an impact around Long Beach and Port of Los Angeles. If there is an impact to rail and or the highways there, don't be surprised if a lot of store shelves are empty. And as an example, it used to, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but it used to be that Walmart turned their inventory about every 45 days. And you want to think about what happens if Walmart misses just one inventory turn. Think of the impact that has on 
revenue, think of the impact that has on profitability. And the volume of product that would be unavailable in the US is staggering. Walmart's the biggest retailer in the world. Because you could argue Amazon as well. But that type of effect or that type of um, act, natural disaster, if you will, that wouldn't affect just Walmart. It would affect nearly everybody's business. And so as an example, if you own Walmart in your LTH, probably be a wise thing to buy insurance if you had an earthquake doing damage in that region that I was speaking of. So back to what we talked about in doing the news, weather can be a driver of the market. Natural hack or natural, what's what I'm looking for? Acts of nature, can't think of the word, forces of nature, act of God, whatever you call it, could have an impact and can and, and will have an impact on the stock market. <clears throat> Next thing to talk about is your 401k along with your IRA. They are not your income account. Don't treat them as an income account. Someone was asking earlier about it today. Also, they're not your LTH. It's not where we store them. So don't treat them like a long-term holding, um, holding zone area. You want to trade them so you can take advantage of the tax of deferral and or tax avoidance benefits, whether it's a, a traditional or a Roth. To me, it's a trading vehicle, not in a trading account, but it's not an investment vehicle. I'm, I would think my, the way I look at it, I want to trade those eh, five to 10 times a year if I had to use mutual funds. And I can trade a little more when trading stock. And it all goes back to your comfort level, right? If you're not comfortable with this yet, don't, don't do anything in the IRA because it's too hard to reimburse. Once you're comfortable with that, you can simply just buy, sell stock and or you can use synthetic, which we covered back in January, February, where appropriate. And post splits are a great vehicle within an IRA. <clears throat> I, thought, I alluded to this a little bit earlier today. So I think it was AJ that was asking about this. So you're your timing was good. I don't know if you had read ahead to, to know that you were going to be talking when I was going to be covering this a little bit later on. But here's an eye-popping money management strategy to think about. And you could consider doing this after you've done a few iterations of your Ultra account. Don't make it your first iteration with the Ultra. Run the Ultra a few times to get it up to whatever a sizable number is for you. And then think about running it, an Ultra, on a Roth account. Take a small portion of a Roth and run an ultra on that. If you've listened to the testimonial that I was referencing earlier, average return that you'll see on options, if you're if you're trading them properly, is yeah, 20 to 30%. That's not a stretch. If you take an average number there being 25%, if you ran an ultra, with not 10 trades, but 10 net wins. So, and the assumption on that is that your loss is at max the size of your win. Hopefully it's less than that because you're running off a two to one risk reward. <clears throat> but at worst case, if your loss is the size of your win, and let's say you're running with seven out of 10 as a win rate, so that means over 10 trades, you get seven wins. 
three of those are losers, so you pay for those with max three of the winners, so now you're at a net four. Run another 10 trades. <clears throat> that would give you a net eight. Run another 10 trades. That gives you a net 12. If you run a 25, an average of a 25% gain, and you do that over 10 wins, it effectively adds a zero to your starting balance. You can run, a, you run this on a calculator, you can figure it out. It's pretty straightforward. So you don't even need to get to, if you get to 12, you're well beyond that adding a zero. Now imagine doing that in a Roth. Start with $1,000. X number of trades, now you're at $10,000. And if you freak out along the way, no problem. Start back at $1,000. But now run that up to adding a zero. So one goes to 10. Start over, do it again. So if, let's say your Roth was a $5,000 balance to begin. I'm just making up numbers as I go. And you're gonna trade 1,000 of those five. The other four sit in cash. You do that over 10 winning trades or over a net 10 wins. That 1,000 turns to approximately 10. So that says your balance is now 14. Start over. Use one. Do it again. Now, you've had, now your balance is about 24. Started with five. You've only had one at risk. You've had some gains, right? But if, if you're to lose, you're giving back the market maker's money. We never risked more than our start. We've stayed well under our starting Roth balance. Now, what do we say I'm up to 24? Maybe at this point now, maybe you start with two and run it for 10 net wins. That two turns into 20. Now your balance is at 44. Do it again at two. Turns to another 20. Now your balance is 64. You see where I'm going with this? And I'm not necessarily, I'm not pushing all in on a big number. I'm using a portion of the balance. Imagine you do that a few more times. <clears throat> so now you, you're running, and however long that takes you, it takes you a year, two years, I don't know. But now you're sitting with 100K balance in your Roth. Maybe at that point, you're comfortable pushing $4,000 on a trade. Run the 10 trades. Four turns into 40. I don't know if you'll vomit along the way or not. Maybe that's too big for you. I don't know. That's all going to depend on you. Maybe you stay at two. Two turns into 20. If you're trading the smaller time frames, it's not a stretch to find 10 of those in a month. If you're trading on the larger time frame, you can find 10 of those in a quarter. That's a nice number. And you get to the age where you can withdraw that, that's a tax-free withdrawal. The power on this is eye-popping. But you have to get to the point of being able to recognize a foundational trade setup be patient to wait for it, proper entry, intelligent exit done according to plan, be able to do that consistently, and then work on your psychology 
so that you're not adding, acting like a greedy fool and idiot. Don't be fearful. Follow the rules. It's all the rules that were listed in class one of POWs. It's all right there. The requirement to do that is twofold. The first one is discipline with a cap. In fact, the whole word is capitalized, not just a capital D. The whole word is capitalized and bolded. And the second thing you need is experience. The strategy isn't going away. If you're just starting out to, oh, I got to get there tomorrow. No, you don't. It's waiting for you when you're ready. But when you have those two elements, the impact on that is life-changing. When you're running that in an account that has a tax-free aspect to it. Any questions on that before I keep going? Somebody typed in a question. For these natural event trades, are we still looking for 3X on the chart? Um, Scott, yeah, it's all it would, we never just jump in because it's always proper entry, intelligent exit, according to plan. Otherwise, you could jump in on any news event if you didn't stick to that discipline. Somebody else chimed in earlier and they said they have to overcome the lacking mentality that's been a part of their upbringing. And you're not the only one. Don't feel that you're alone in that. But all it is, is you learn to recognize the opportunity. Think of it from the perspective of an immigrant, right? And we all are immigrants, right? I'm, I'm one generation of immigrant removed from you. It might've been your parents that immigrated here from another country. For me, it was my grandparents. So I'm just, I'm just one more generation further away from the, the person that came across on a boat. That's the only difference between you and me. My grandparents came here because of the opportunity. And they drilled that into my folks. And they, in turn, they probably didn't drill it as hard into me, but they drilled it into me. The opportunities here are tremendous. But as part of that, as example, the immigrant experience, there may be a concern there that there isn't much that you're lacking. Because you look around and you see people around you that seem to have a lot. And yet, you may not have had much growing up. And what little you do get, you want to hang on to. And as long as you recognize that, now you make small steps to look to improve that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an expert on that. But it's, it's a pretty, I won't say simple. It's, it's common to see. And when you become aware of that, that's when you start to make changes. And you'll fall back into your habit of the way you've always done it. And that's normal. And you have to make the conscious effort to behave differently and to think differently. All right, next thing to talk about, the types of trades or tiers of trades. So there's a first tier trade, and those are trades that are set up to move in the same direction as the market and the sector on the same charting time frame. So you see a, a daily setup, bullish, 
and you then look at the market and the sector, you go, oh, look at that. Maybe it's an oil trade. And they're like, oh my gosh, the oil sector is doing the same thing. And the market's heading north. Perfect. And going in the direction of the bigger time frames. Second tier of trades is you have an individual stock has its own catalyst. Maybe it's earnings or splits coming up. And it's volatile, volatile enough that it can be that it can be traded regardless of what the sector's doing. And you'll find that it's easiest if you'll do this when it's moving with the market. You, you don't want to fight the market on these. These are the only trades you're supposed to take. Life or death obvious at the rate of about five to 10 a month. If you only can see the daily chart, daily 233, some months you're not going to get five. Accept it. Don't force it. You only want to trade. It, it's the dating metaphor. Right, you only want to you only want to date the most attractive setups. You only want to date the prom queens, the prom kings. I don't want the runner-up, and I certainly don't want the people in the in the stands. I want the best-looking setup. Daily two thirty-three, certain times of the year, you're not going to get five a month. No problem. If that bothers you make yourself available. Don't quit your job, figure out how to make yourself available. Couple of students, one guy runs a retail store. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I had a discussion with him, sitting down with Tim, the guy who does the podcast, gave me the idea for the podcast. And he looked at him over dinner and he said, just think of it this way. What do you need to do to make yourself available between six and one? He's living in LA. And the guy looked at him and he said, well, I could hire somebody on a part-time basis to cover the shop till lunch. Then do it. He looked at him and he goes, oh yeah. It's, it's very obvious from the outside. Sometimes you can't see it when you're in it. And to this day, he hired somebody that runs the shop and he lives nearby. He shows up there at about 1, 1 every day but he made himself available to be able to see the market during the day. Figure out what you need to do that. Talked earlier, it was today. Either today or yesterday, it was in the morning. I think it was today. Talked with a nurse <clears throat> and she's a, uh, <laughs> just side note, doesn't matter. Um, you've heard me say, I don't like, uh, if ever I have to spend money on something I don't like, I make one of the employees there become a student. This lady works at City of Hope, a cancer hospital I had to go to six, seven, eight years ago. And I laughed. She heard about it from someone there. And I said, oh, cool. You're, and I told her what was going on. I said I'd been there. And she asked what it was. And I said, hey, just so you know, I did not like having, I'm glad you guys were there, but it pissed me off to have to pay for it. Right? I didn't want to be there in the first place. So I made it a point that there will be employees from that place. Well, I'm thrilled that they helped me out. I still didn't like being there um, that are paying for it. I said, you're, you're on the, uh, you know, at the end of the line here. <laughs> there haven't been a few. And she started to laugh. And she said, if this works like everyone tells me that it does, I'm happy to pay it. She goes, I'll pay you twice. And we had a good laugh about it. But on her schedule, she works 12-hour shifts. And I said, D, I said, in a perfect world, can you work weekends? She said, oh yeah. And she goes, I like to because they give us a bump in pay. I said, well, you might want to think about scheduling it on weekends. So now you're available during the week to see the market during the week. 
she can shift her schedule around. That's what you look to do. You may find hundreds of trades per month, depending what kind of time frame you can look at, but you're expected to choose the best handful or two of trades each month. And that's based on your ability and based on your plan. So you're gonna see, I don't know, two, 300 trades in a month. Your job is to pick the best five, pick the best 10. And then what you do is you, you don't work to increase the number of trades. You work to improve the quality of the setup, which means then you can bump your trade size. We talked last month about the 10% put trade. Keep that in mind as you think of the first tier trades as we move deeper into the summer. There's a little hint for you. Next thing to talk about is gas prices. What happens to the price of gas during the summer? The answer is it goes up. The gas prices generally rise in the summer. Well, think about that. If that's a no, and you know, they talk about it on the news all the time. Well, who might that affect? Well, how about, how about UPS, <clears throat> right? Package delivery. Go look up UPS in the summer in years past. Could there be a 10% put trade there? Because 10% put trades can work great with stocks that are impacted negatively with rising gas prices. Part of your historical research, find an index that has a historical move, maybe in the summer. And then go find stocks that also move and see if there's a 10% put possibility on those. Do the research, make it part of your plan. If you study these, you might come to the realization that you're going to be a tad bit upset if you don't make more than 200% on these trades. And you'll find that making 100% isn't that exciting. Remember earlier today, I said you got to look back to see how far you've progressed. When you started, you were hoping to make any kind of profit. Now, when you do this research I just talked to you about, you may find you get a little bit pissed off if you don't exceed 100% on some of these setups. It's not going to happen on every trade. But there are some setups that are historically pretty good opportunities. In the summer, <clears throat> you're going to find stocks with perfect setups that will go band to band on the smaller time frames. And it'll make a total move of maybe 75 cents. Now, you're not going to make much options money on a 75 cent stock move. I guess, on the other hand, it depends on the stock. I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth. Those of you that have experience know what I'm talking about. But a 75 cent stock move, options, the bid ask spread being wide, it's going to be tough to be very profitable. And you got to buy a boatload of stock to make much money. And yet, you know it's going to go up. And you may choose to pass. As you get deeper into the summer, you may accept less than a dollar but only when there's no trades available for dollars. Now, again, there's stocks that move less than a dollar. We'll cover those in August that give you very handsome returns going band to band on the smaller charts. And it happens during the summer as well. So part of your development comes from reviewing the stocks in the workspace 
and figuring out, determining which stocks you can trade to be able to make dollars during the summer. It's not just about having a good chart setup. You wanna trade not just a good chart, but a good stock with a good chart and with the potential to move enough to make it worth your while. We talked about this before. Let me hit it a little harder here and put it in writing. We've mentioned it earlier. There's a relationship between the Dow and the banking index. You always wanna take a look at the weekly and daily banking index, dollar BKX. When the market moves in a certain direction, you wanna see the banking index move at the same time in that direction. There's gonna be times when the Dow has been coming down and it continues to go down. Meanwhile, the banking index has stopped going down. And this is often where the public will regurgitate, throw up their stock, they vomit it up. In the late summer, if you see the Dow heading lower and the banking index stops going lower, it's pretty likely that that down move on the Dow is soon to be over. And if you have this knowledge, it gives you an edge. You wanna make sure you understand that relationship going forward. Now, don't come on and ask me and say, well, what if one's doing this and what if one's doing that? Go back and look at the charts and find examples of it. It has happened in the past, you can find it. It's right there for the taking if you'll spend the time and study it. Probably study it for about an hour, maybe spend over three days, spend 30 minutes looking at it. Give you an hour and a half, two hours, you'll see it. And if you don't see it, don't worry about it. Go back and look at it later. Give it six months a year. Go back and look at it later. It be, once you know what to look for, it becomes very clear. You just gotta study, you just gotta put in the time. Sit up, put your ass in the chair and grind out the, grind out the chart study. More things to think of on the LTH related to volatility. Um, some of you ask, you know, you're going through your objective now. We talked about this back in January, February. Your objective is to come up with a list of your 12 names for your LTH. And some of you are starting to ask how much volatility you should actually have within those long-term holdings. In my opinion, you don't want a, a LTH stock that is predict, unpredictably volatile, like a biotech. Some of you ask about Goldman Sachs. So you look at that and think, you don't think that's going anywhere. It'll be around forever, is your perception. But there are times that that thing can be very volatile. And, you know, brokerage is very likely to be in business. And although they can be volatile, their movements generally are predictable. But I would not suggest or would not encourage you to have an entire portfolio of LTH stocks with that kind of volatility. You want to be able to sleep well at night. If you're not sleeping well because of your LTH, you've got the wrong stocks in the LTH. Now, depending on your personality and your level of anxiety or level of calmness, you might have two or three stocks that have Goldman-esque volatility and have the rest of them be boring, stodgy ones, little to no movement. That's fine. That's up to you. Now, you're going to say, what does he mean by Goldman volatility? You may look at Goldman recently, and maybe it hasn't moved much. That's fine. Take Goldman back about 20, 25 years. You're going to see some periods in there where that thing moves around a lot. 
and you have to decide and you think, well, yeah, if it's rising, that's great. But understand it can fall too. And so you have to decide what you're comfortable with. And there's no wrong answer. There's no right answer. The right answer is for you. What are you comfortable with? How much volatility can you stomach and not lose sleep? Because understand, you don't get wealthy by trading. You get wealthy from investing. And people question the discrepancy between Buffett saying own, don't trade, versus the method that I show you, which is trade some and eventually own lots. If you go back and look at Buffett's history from when he started, he was not always a buy and hold guy. He was moving money around. There's articles where he would talk about 20 years ago. And I read something in the last few years where he mentioned this. He said, if you were starting out today, you could pull 50% per year. We did a podcast episode on this. He said, making 50% a year is not a problem. But the challenge is, as his numbers get bigger, when he's in the tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, it's much harder to move in and out that quickly without upsetting the stock and the market. So he doesn't have the ability to make those kind of returns. And he's got to spread it out across a larger swath of companies. And he's got to be more of a buy and hold. But um, the amount of dollars that most of us are trading, those kind of returns are not a stretch. Go find that podcast episode where it says, Buffett says he can make 50%. Something I titled it something like that. We did it within the last 12 months. <clears throat> but you have to recognize what Berkshire does. They buy a company outright. And then they grab the earnings and that rolls into the mothership. And then Berkshire will reinvest those earnings by looking to buy another company. They're sitting on, if I remember the number right, I think it was $130 billion. And then I thought I read something where they made a purchase recently in the last maybe week or so. They made a chunk, but it, it didn't make much of a dent in that $130 billion nest egg. And they're waiting for an opportunity when there's blood in the streets and they find something that meets their criteria, they'll go in and take a big bite. And that's for companies that he buys all the outstanding shares. But what about the companies where he owns a large chunk of the outstanding shares? How does he make money on those shares? Well, on Apple, it's been on a rise. Can you imagine how wealthy he would have been had he bought Apple? to the degree that he has it now, if he'd have bought it 10 years ago. Think about that. You know, we argue as to who's the wealthiest, whether it's Elon or Gates or Buffett or the guy, the guy in Europe that owns the luxury brand. Um, can't think of his name. Whatever his name is, doesn't matter. But imagine if Buffett had opened his eyes to the opportunity in technology and had picked up Apple a decade ago. It would be a race for second place the world's wealthiest guy is an investor. He's not a founder, right? Like a Gates or a Musk or Elon. But going back to Buffett, on the companies where he owns a large chunk of shares, he, you know, for example, he owns hundreds of millions of shares of Coke and he's owned them since the early 90s, I think is when he made this first purchase. Do you think he's satisfied? with their small, I was curious, let me see what Coke pays in a dividend. I'm just curious now that I say this. Uh, let's see, Coke pays a dividend of 
just under 3%. You think he's satisfied getting 3% a year on his money out of Coke? It's not bad. <clears throat> but I wonder, and I suspect that maybe what he does is he sells covered calls when appropriate against his shares. And he generates a return on that invested cash. I've heard him allude to it. I've never heard him specifically say it. And I'm always shocked that people don't ask him at the Berkshire meetings if he's doing that. I wonder too if he sells naked call or naked puts when he thinks the price is cheap because he'll capture the premium. And if the price falls further, he's willing to buy it at that price because he's comfortable owning the stock at that price. Very interesting. Just got to be aware of these things. Chris, I was actually curious about that. Um, you mentioned him having a harder time getting fills at certain prices. Wouldn't selling a put be a strategy to be able to um, buy a stock at the price that you'd want? Uh, it could, but again, he's when if you're selling a put, wait, back up, Tim. Say the first thing where he has trouble getting filled. What do you mean? Yeah, so um, at the beginning, um, you were talking about how when he makes such large purchases, it impacts the stock. Yeah, so, so example, he can't go out and day trade his Coke shares. Right, I thought you were saying like just buying the shares outright, he wouldn't get the, the fill that no, he wants. Yeah, no, no, I mean, there, it depends how big he buys in, but think about it, you know, if he owns, let's say he owns 10% of Coke. Mm-hmm. He can't, you and I, if we decide to buy Coke and then sell it later on today or tomorrow, mm -hmm. Tim, I don't know how wealthy you are, but I know if I took my whole net worth, I'm not going to upset the price of Coke if I went all in on a Coke trade today and sold it tomorrow. Right? But if Buffett did that with his holdings, you know, if he owns 10% of the company, that's going to have an impact on the stock price. Right? He can't dump it that quickly. Yeah, and I know this is a, this is That's definitely great. not in my um, my realm, but out of curiosity, so like, if he has that much impact on a stock, theoretically, couldn't he say do buy call options before he buys the stock, or is that like some kind of illegal strategy? I don't know. But a thing about if you were to buy, you're saying he's going to buy call options and then buy the stock and have it run up and then I'll sell the calls and be profitable. Yeah. That, that might be front running. I don't know. Um, the other thing is the amount that he, yeah, I don't know. I, I, from what I understand of, you know, listening to his integrity, I don't think he would do that, but could yeah. he, I suppose he could. But I would imagine if, if word got out that they caught him doing that. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good, that's an interesting approach. I, I never thought about that. Yeah, so it made me think about that when, um, you know, there are these smaller stocks that eventually were able to impact if we were to do a large buy. Yeah, it, so I mean, it's, it's a GameStop. It's a GameStop approach. Yeah. Right, but he's doing it on his own. Yeah, there has to be some kind of regulation about it. Yeah, there probably is. I don't know. I could see Icon. I don't, I don't know that Buffett doesn't strike me as the type that would do that. Icon. 
I could see Icon maybe doing that. I don't know if it's ever been done. And maybe there's a rule that says you can't. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But out, outside of our realm. But no, no problem. Good question. I don't, did I answer it? I'm not sure I did. No, you did. I mean, I'll, I'll look into it and I'll report back. Yeah, that's okay. And it may be something, Tim, even if, if you and I combined our, our, our combined net worth, I don't think it'll have an impact. So maybe, yeah. maybe we don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Cool. Other questions? Thank you, Tim. All right, let's move on. Uh, Chris covered the naked options earlier and we covered the student trades. So last thing we got, we'll wrap it up. Over time, and with lots of practice, just like it's described in the book Blink, which is the recommended reading I added to your list earlier today, you're going to be able to see trades setting up without having to go in and count the reasons on the chart that I gave you in the March or April class about the reasons to do trades. But with that setup, if you then went to count the reasons, you'll find that it meets the criteria and you'll just be able to recognize it without going back and counting the reasons. An easy example on that, if you talk to somebody that has a lar uh, um, large amount of experience in construction, maybe in doing framing on homes, they can look at a board and tell if it's straight. The app, and you, you know, go look, next time you go into Home Depot, go into the lumber and look at the long two by fours, you know, a 10 or 12 foot long two by four and see if you can tell if it's straight. And you get a construction worker and they can look at it instantly and be able to tell. But the average person might say that it's straight. Construction worker gonna go, nope, it's not straight. How does that guy know? Well, he knows, is because, he knows because he's looked at boards for 12 hours a day for years and years. The guy that prints the manuals for me <clears throat> has run a print shop since he got out of, out of high school. He's about 20 years old working with his dad. He's now in his late mid late fifties. I've been in the shop with him and he'll say, do you want, you know, when we're looking at how we're going to print the manuals, he would say, do you want this? I think the word they use is bond. Do you want this bond or that bond? Like, what does that mean? He said, it's basically the thickness of the page. And so I picked one up off the pile and I grabbed it too. And I was just kind of feeling it and see how much it been. I said, now let's go with this one. And then I realized, oh, he didn't know which one I grabbed. And I handed it to him and he felt it and he said, oh, that's this. But how, how could you tell the difference? That sheet of white paper looks just like the other three sheets of white paper. He looked at me, he said, oh, yeah, you can feel it. And I felt it and I said, yeah, I can tell the difference now when I hold them both. But how do you know if what we picked was 20 or 30 or 12? He just looked at me and he was like, I just know. And it's because he has felt the thickness of paper for the last 35 years. He knows when he touches a sheet of paper how thick it is. He doesn't need to look on the wrapper to tell what it is. He just knows. That's experience. He can blink the strength of the or the thickness of the paper just off the touch of it. Most of us can't do that. We can tell that one's thicker than the other, but I couldn't tell you what number it was. He can do that. And the reason he can do that is through consistent practice. And that takes time, it takes patience, it takes focus, it takes discipline. That's on recognizing the thickness of paper. 
We do the same thing on recognizing the suitability of a trade setup. You learn to recognize what a foundational setup looks like. You go back in time on the charts to find those to prove you know what you're seeing and that they work. And now you move that back in time setup to the right edge to say, oh, this is when it looks like when it's set up to go and pay attention to the larger chart and then go find a hundred that look just like that. Notice the subtleties and the differences. And now you're able to look for those on the right edge as the chart is setting up for the next candle. That applies to everything you do in life. If you apply those five things, consistent practice, time, patient, focus, and discipline. All of your greatest achievements require those things. Literally is as simple as that. Munger's got a great quote. He said, if you live right, the inferior part of life is the early part. You've got to admit your mistakes and learn from them so you never repeat it. You do the job right the first time and just be responsible. Any questions? Cool. Um, as I said before, go listen to that testimonial on the POWS website. I promise you, you will find value in there. I don't care where you are in your experience in trading. There are nuggets in there that will help you out. It's about an hour and 20 minutes. Um, we've got, what do we got next? In a couple of weeks, we've got the Wednesday webinar. Uh, when we'll be running that one because Lamb's going to be out of town.